Well, friends, if you want to start making your way over to Romans chapter uh, 4 this morning, that's where we're going to be. Romans is found in the Newer Testament. It's in the back third of your Bible. And so if you want to start making your way there, we are actually setting aside a whole year to walk through the book of Romans together. That's a really long time. We've said kind of the idea that we've been chasing down is if you want the best water from the well, you don't dig the well out, you dig the well deep. That's where the, the purest water comes. And we said that the book of Romans is a deep dive into how and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And so we are setting aside a whole year to do a deep dive and to walk through not every verse, but major chunks of the book of Romans. And so last week, we talked about this idea of that because of me and my rebellious heart, I've wandered off far from home. And so God had to come and get me and rescue me and bring me back to where I was created to be. And so we called this idea uh, last week of God making us right, justification. We said that was this idea of being justified before God. We called it, Paul calls the term justification by faith. Now, for a lot of us growing up, uh, um, we get the first chunk of that. We understand that to be justified, to be brought back into right relationship with God means that you are a forgiven person. And that's right, and we affirm that, and we believe that. But we also said last week that justification takes it a step further. It gets a little bit more scandalous than that. Because not only are you forgiven from your sin, but now when God sees you, he makes a declaration over you, and he calls you righteous. He calls you pure and holy and blameless. Or you could say it this way, um, not that the stain has just been forgiven, but the stain has been completely removed. And so now when he looks at you, he does not see you. He sees Jesus living inside of you. This is what the scriptures say. It says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives inside of me. And so now when Jesus looks at you and he looks at me, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And that is, uh, that's a big pill to swallow. We had, uh, I don't know about you guys, but in my life group, we had some good dialogue about that, that kind of growing up, we had a long history of Christians are forgiven and we are not, uh, our sin gets nailed to the cross of Jesus, but we don't own the second part of that. The second part of the promise is, is that you've been declared righteous in God's sight. And so that was something that we got to wrestle with um, all last week, and it was really good for us. And so this morning, Paul is going to build on his argument. He's talking about this understanding of justification by faith. Now, question for you as we get started. How many of you guys uh, enjoyed biology class, like when you were in middle school, high school? Um, there is a rite of passage in, uh, when you take biology, and I'm not talking about that one, so don't start chuckling already, all right? So when we're talking about, there is another rite of passage in biology, and it is called Dissection Day. Do you guys know this day? Just curious, uh, did anybody, uh, so I did a frog. Did anybody do anything besides a frog? I would let, what did you do? A what? Grasshopper? That seems really small. What did y'all do? A pig? Oh my gosh, what did you do? A cat? Oh, <laughs> You could prove it didn't have a soul by looking inside of that little thing. So what did you do? A pig? Oh my gosh. Well, I did a frog. And so like when I was a, I don't know, freshman in high school, 
they bring out, do you remember these, they're like these trays, but they're, they're gross. <laughs> they're, they, they have, they're like rubber in the inside and they have this frog on it. And kind of before I dissected this thing, it was like this, oh, I never give it really a second thought. It's just a frog. But after you like make that cut and you start unfolding that frog, you start to realize how complex and actually like there's a lot of complex organisms and things floating around. And when you put all of those together, it actually comes alive. Now, this is the hard transition. Paul this morning is going to say this. In Romans chapter 3, he has this understanding of what is called justification by faith. That's what we talked about. In chapter 4, what Paul is going to do is he's going to ask the question, what exactly is faith? And Paul is going to really take faith out on the table, and he is going to peel it back, and he's going to do a dissection of what does it mean to have faith. And not just any faith, like a general faith out there, but faith that brings the justification of God. And so that's where we're going to be headed this morning, because if you remember, all throughout the book of Romans, um, faith plays such a critical role um, uh, in our understanding of what it means to be brought into a relationship with Christ. One of the key verses from last week talked about this. Romans 3, uh, 22 says this, this righteousness, what we talked about, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so what exactly is that faith that he's talking about? Because I would imagine that if we were to ask, you know, 10 different people in this room, we would probably get 10 different answers. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to uh, um, look and examine and to dissect what does it mean to have these saving elements of faith that Paul talks, that Paul talks about here in chapter four. And this is why it's important. Because faith is the vehicle that allows for the justification to come into our life. Or you could say it this way, faith then is the vehicle that points us in the direction of Jesus. It's the means in which we unlock our relationship with him. And so Paul wants to make sure that everybody is very clear about exactly what does it mean to be justified through faith. And so Paul is going to make an argument this morning. Remember, he is, the book of Romans is written to uh, not just Gentiles, which is... Um, everybody non-Jewish, but it's also written to Jewish Christians. And they are having a really difficult time accepting Paul's message because they're like, Paul, you've like changed things on us. You're saying totally, totally new radical things. That's not part of our history. And so what Paul is going to do this morning, he's going to say, no, that's not true. Let's go back and look at Abraham because the Jewish person would have thought of Abraham as kind of the father of their faith, right? And so Paul is going to look at Abraham and say, let's go back and look at how Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. And that's, he's going to show that this is not a new thing I'm saying, that actually this is something that goes way back thousands of years. It's part of God's design from the very beginning. And so Paul is going to raise three central questions that we're going to tackle this morning. And these are the three different questions. Number one, how was Abraham saved? Second question, which you think is not a very important one, but is actually very important. When was Abraham saved? And then the last question, where we're going to spend the most of our time together this morning, are what exactly are the 
when you dissect it, when you cut it open, what are the elements of that saving faith? All right? So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to say the Shema. God help us. Last week, I went 50 minutes and I had five verses. This week, we got 21 verses we're going to go through this morning. So you guys better buckle up. If you're new to Riverside, uh, I don't have time to explain the Shema. So if it's weird, ask somebody sitting next to you and they'll walk you through it at the end of service. So let's say the Shema together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Naika. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. And so, God, we love you. God, we pray that as we read your word, God, our prayer is always that it would read us as well. God, may we see things we've never seen before so that we can do things we've never seen. Father, may we feel your love more than we've ever known so that we, in return, God, we can love a world that desperately needs to know you. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. All right. First question that we're going to tackle is, how was Abraham saved? Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, 3, it says this. What shall we say then about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? In fact, Abraham was justified by works he would have something to boast about. And Paul makes a big deal about boasting. And the idea is, as you'll see this all throughout the book of Romans, whatever you boast in is what you're taking pride in. And Paul is gonna say, if you're taking pride in works of the law or your own ability to achieve, it's misguided. And it says this, uh, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is what we spent really all of last week talking about. It's this idea that you and I could never measure up to a holy God, that there's nothing that we could do that would make us present ourselves acceptable to a holy and righteous God, that that is a gift that we receive purely based on who Christ is and not who we are. And thank God that it is not dependent on me or my abilities to be faithful, but it's dependent on his ability to be faithful to me. It's this beautiful thing. And so what Paul is going to say here is he's going to say, when was Abraham saved? Was it before the law or after law? After the law? And so he's saying Abraham was not counted as righteous because he was a good guy, because he was a moral person. No, it was a gift that he received. He received. Verse four, let's keep going. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. And this is an understanding that all of us have um, with every job you've ever worked is you work a job and at the end of the week, you get a paycheck. And when you get your paycheck, you don't go to your boss and say, thank you for being so generous with me. You're so kind Thank you for giving my, me what, my money. No, you have worked, you have done them a service, and it is right that they pay you for the work that you have done, right? Paul is gonna say, this is how a lot of people treat God. That a lot of us work, we do things for God so that we feel like we can earn a table or earn a seat at the table. Listen, this is the single most significant issue that separates a relationship with Jesus than every other relationship, every other religion out there in the world. This one under 
standing. Every other religion in the world operates off this premises of if I obey, if I do what this person or thing commands long enough and hard enough, then I might be acceptable before God. Christianity flips that upside down and says, you already are acceptable, free from what you've done or what you can accomplish. And so now when you obey, it's out of a delight and an overflow of your heart. It is the most distinctly uh, foundation of what separates a relationship with Jesus between every other religion out there. The problem is, is when you and I do good works to earn something, really we're not concerned. If we do it to earn our seat at the table with God, it actually shows us that we're not really concerned about loving God. What it actually shows is, is that we want something in return. It's actually a self-prioritization. Have you ever been to Starbucks before and uh, the barista makes your coffee and right before you're gonna tip her or him, and you, you're gonna put it in, they turn around and you're like, oh man, now what do I do? Like, like I've done that before and I'm like, no, like I don't wanna drop it in there without her seeing that I was generous with her. And so I'll hold it like right over the tip jar, kind of like a creeper and I'm holding it there. She turns around and I'm like, there you go. Do you see how generous I was? Uh, now, who am I concerned about? Am I concerned about being a blessing to her and just generous to her? No, I'm actually concerned about me. I want her to see me be generous. Same thing with God. Same thing with God. If we think we can earn our way to it, then it's actually not God that we're concerned about. We're concerned about us. And Paul is saying, Christians, followers of Jesus, operate off a total different premises. Look at verse five. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies, I love this, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, what is Paul talking about when he says, does not work? Does that mean that as followers of Jesus, um, that we don't do anything, we don't bear fruit, that we don't work? Obviously, that is not true. If you've read the Newer Testament, you see all of the disciples running after everything that God has in store for him. They bear much fruit. But what Paul is talking about here is when it comes to establishing your, your righteousness with God, if instead of um, expecting it as a reward, you receive it as a gift because you believe the one that has declared you righteous in his sight. And when you believe that he declares you righteous in his sight, the, the scripture there says it is credited to you as righteousness. Now, if you're in your Bibles, which I hope you are, uh, have your Bibles this morning or you're going through the Bible app on your phone, the UVerse uh, is really a helpful way for you to take notes. You can email it to yourself. You'll find all the scriptures and all the references on there. But if you're taking notes this morning, I would highly recommend go out and highlight every time you see the word credited in Romans chapter four. It's the most important word in all of the chapter. Why? There's a specific understanding that you need to see this morning. Whenever you see the word credit, that is the Greek word logizomai, and we have it up on the screen for you. That means that you, uh, it's the idea that something gets credited to you. So for example, Ryan, my oldest daughter, has a bank account with like, I don't know, $20, $23 in it. Uh, let's pretend at the end of the week, I have decided that I would like to 
take all of my inheritance, all of my assets, and I'm going to sell them all off, and I'm going to give it to Ryan. What I would do is I would gather all that information. I would go down to the bank, and the banker would logizo my, my account into Ryan's account. And what would happen would be is that suddenly she, her $23 would spike, and now she would have about $323 uh, deposited into her account, Right? Do you see that, uh, that, that, that mental picture there, the logizomai? There is a crediting that gets credited into your account. Now, this is the, one of the most crucial parts for this whole past passage. Why over and over and over does Paul use this word credited as righteousness? Credited as righteousness. Because faith, please listen. Faith is not a general belief in God because a lot of people have a general belief that there is a, they're in God. But when we're talking about faith that brings us into right relationship with Jesus, faith as a means that Jesus, uh, that we become right with Jesus, you're actually believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he was going to do, and now he logizomize your account. That he takes, <coughs> there is a transfer going on. That he takes everything that was rightfully due to you, which the scripture says is death, and he credits his account. And what, do we, what does he do with his account? He logizomize it to us. And so he is gifted our death and we are gifted his righteousness. That is not a general understanding of what faith is. You're actually believing something very, very specific. <clears throat> I've heard it called a trust transfer before. It's this idea that, that as I'm here, I am counting on my legs to hold me up, to keep me uh, upright. And if I were going to sit down, I would have to transfer my trust to something else, to my bottom, right? And so as I sit down, I'm transferring the weight of my life onto my bottom, right? Now, do my legs still work? Yeah, of course they still work. But my, now I'm trusting in something else to hold me up. That's exactly what Paul is saying has happened. Now, when you are credited with righteousness, you are not trusting in your own ability to help stand you up, but you are trusting that Christ has credited you with uh, the gift of forgiveness and righteousness. You are believing something very, very specific. Now, after this, Paul is going to go to another Old Testament hero, and that is King David. So let's look at what it says in verse 6. Dave, verse 6 says this of chapter 4. David says the same thing when he speaks about the blessedness of the one whom God credits, logizomai, righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are, excuse me, transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins in the Lord will never be counted. Another word for that is logizomai against them. Blessed is those who sin in the Lord, who sin the Lord will never be counted against them. So remember the story of David. David is not some scrub on the JVB team. David is a varsity level sinner. Varsity level. This guy, honestly, you guys, it's crazy that he's called a man after God's own heart because do you remember his story? Do you remember the story of David? When he is supposed to be out off to war doing what kings do, 
he's strolling around on the rooftop and just happens to stumble across a woman bathing on the roof next to him. And then he inquires. He brings her into his house. He uh, finds out who she is, and it's the best friend of uh, Uriah, his friend. It's his wife. He brings her into his house, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant to cover up his shame and uh, the pregnancy. He sends Uriah, he plots to have Uriah murdered, sends him to the front lines. Uriah is murdered. And then David brings uh, Bathsheba into his house and says, this child is legit. It's been my child. And he thinks that everything is just kosher. That's the story. Now, all of that is fine until about a year later when the prophet Nathaniel shows up on the door of David. And David, after a year, finally repents. And he says this funny little phrase in there. It says, David quotes, blessed is the man whose sins will not be logizomide against him. Now, let's be honest. How many of you love the story of David? It's awesome. It's a great story, right? Unless you're Uriah's mother. It's not a great story for that lady, is it? It can't be just that easy. I mean, how can you let somebody that has just murdered your son off the hook, stolen his wife, got her pregnant, lied about it? Are you kidding me? It's not that easy. And David knew that. David knew it was not that easy. That's why he said, Blessed is the man whose sins are not credited towards him. He knew that his actions deserve death. It's just that it wasn't his death that paid for it. It was Jesus' death. Jesus paid the debt. You see, his sin was incredibly costly. And it was something that he could never pay on his own. And so someone came and paid that on his on his behalf. Jesus logizomides our sins. He, he takes them on as what is rightfully ours and they get credited to Jesus's account. And we get credited for his righteousness. Paul says that David's sin comes with the highest price and it costs Jesus his life. Just like our sin caused is, uh, is a result of the highest price that could ever be paid. And that was when Jesus paid it on the cross. And because he was credited with my death, I get credited with his righteousness. That is a beautiful story. So how was Abraham saved? By faith, trusting that God would keep his promise. Now, the second one I want you to see here is when was Abraham saved? Now, you might think that this is just a simple uh, just pass through and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's actually really important. Let's go to verse 10. <clears throat> Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after his circumcision or was it before his circumcision that he was declared righteous? It was not after his circumcision, but before it. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into what circumcision is and all the details of that. All I'm going to do for us this morning is give you a little snippet of what circumcision is. I've been thinking about that all week, you guys. So uh, when we talk about circumcision, the picture I want you to see is that whenever we talk about circumcision, I was a youth pastor for a long time. Whenever we talk about circumcision, what I want you to see is just picture 
the, the, the law that will be, would be given, and that was a sign of the full law, is the idea of circumcision. So the logic goes like this. When was Abraham declared righteous? If he was declared righteous after circumcision, right, then his righteousness would be credited because of what he did or what he did not do, because of his ability to, to keep the law. But Paul, should, Paul tells us in Genesis chapter 15, God declares Abraham righteous. When was circumcision, circumcision given? Chapter 17. So it could not be, his righteousness was not given to him based on his ability to keep the law. God already declared him faithful apart from his ability to measure up to what the law, to the law. Verse 11, let's keep going. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of this righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe who have been circumcised in order that the righteousness, there's that word again, might be logizomide, credited to them. Paul is simply saying that the law could never, the purpose of the law was never to bring salvation. The purpose of the law was to reveal the holiness of God and that you and I needed somebody to come and rescue because it was something that we could never live up to or obtain on our own. That's what the law was about. And so Paul, for the last three chapters, has been making this case. Like, apart from, it's not about your performance or your ability or your ways that you're nailing it or the ways that you're just making mistakes. It's about this gift that has been given to you that has been received to you. We call that, the, we talked about the gift righteousness. And so how was Abraham saved? By faith. When was Abraham saved? before the law was given. Okay, so the rest of the time this morning, this is where we're gonna do the dissecting, all right? So hang with me real quick as we work our way through the last part of this. What then were the saving elements of Abraham's faith? How is it, what were the means that brings us into this right relationship with Christ? And so if you don't know the story of Abraham, it can be actually a little confusing. And so the story of Abraham in 30 seconds goes like this. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the story of the, the Tower of Babel, where people become so prideful and arrogant that they think that they can build their way to attain God. And so it's like a big middle finger out in the desert to, to, to God. And so God scatters all of the people and he changes all of their language. And he picks one man named Abram and he makes a promise to him. He promises that through your lineage, the gift of salvation will come. But there's one little problem with that. And the problem is, is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are in their 70s when this promise is given and they have no children. And they will remain that way until they're 90 years old. And so it looks just utterly hopeless. And so <clears throat> skip down to verse 18. It says this, which is such a powerful line in scripture. I love the way the scripture says this. Against all hope, Abraham hoped. Like, that's a, that's a phrase that all of us should learn. Against all hope, John still hoped, right? Against all hope, you still hope. And that's what Abraham, it says about Abraham. Abraham, against all hope, Abraham still hoped and believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him so shall your offspring be. And so Abraham is not just believing in general about God, he's believing in something very specific. 
And so with the first element that I want you to see, the first part of the dissection for us this morning is this. <clears throat> what are the elements of this saving faith? Well, faith objects is about God's promise. And so when, God, when Abraham received this promise, do you know what he did? He went shopping. He went out to Target and he went and bought a baby crib. They bought diapers. They started dreaming about baby names. They cleaned the house, got the room ready, and they pretended or they lived with the reality that God is a promise keeper and what he said he would do, he, it could be taken all the way to the bank. And so he and his wife from that point on lived under a new reality. So faith is not just a general belief in God because lots of people have just a general belief in God but what Paul is wanting you to see, wanting us to see this morning, the object of that faith, what we're, what we're believing in, is that God is faithful to keep his promise, that he would send the gift of salvation, and we are trusting in that. Verse 23, let's keep going. It says, the words it was credited, Lokizomai, were written not just for him alone, but for all of us to whom God had credited as righteous. For us who believe in him and who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to new life. And so Abraham believed that God would send the gift of salvation through his line. You and I believe that God has sent salvation through the line of David. Have you ever wondered why, how people in the Older Testament became uh, uh, believers? How the term you could use is how they became saved. Well, if this is the cross, they hoped in a promise that God would send salvation in the future. You and I, look, we don't look towards the future for salvation. We look towards the cross. Now, the direction might be different, but what's still the same? It's the cross. Yes. And so how were people in the Older Testament saved? By hoping in the salvation that would come through the line of Abraham. Just like us, we believe that salvation is a gift that God has given. And so that is the object of the faith. We are believing that there is a central moment in history that divides time, literally slices time in half. And that, and that is the cross. And so the direction may still be, may be different, but the object remains the same, is that we are believing that this one event, that God would keep his promise to give the gift of salvation, not just a general belief in God, but to send the gift of salvation to us. Number two, let's keep going. What are the saving elements of faith? Well, faith's focus is in God's ability. Let's look at verse 19 real quick. It says this, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He's 70, 80, 90 years old at this point. And since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, which just sounds very harsh to say that her womb was dead. And so Abraham could have focused on a lot of different things. He could have uh, focused his life on all the things that were set up against him, but he chose to not choose to live with the reality of what is, but he chose to live with the reality about God's ability. When you are believing in Jesus Christ, when you're putting your faith in Christ, you are putting your faith 
in God's ability. Now, can we be honest and real this morning? Because it's such a, it's such a dumb question. Why do, why do we say that? If you can't be honest and real at church, where can you be honest and real? But when it comes to trusting in God's ability, it's not as easy as it sounds. To trust that God is going to come through no matter what, that you're trusting in his ability. Because the truth is, a lot of us, we like to kind of hedge our bets. We like to trust God a little bit and like to trust ourselves a lot of it. We, like if, if God doesn't come through, I still got another way to make this whatever it is happen. I mean, think about it. If you were 90 pushing 100 years old and God came to you and you were childless and he said, I promise you a child is coming, what would be the next thing that you would do? You'd probably go to the fertility clinic. You'd get on Google. You'd start finding out everything because you want to hedge your bet a little bit. Rather than trusting that God's and God's ability, you're going to trust in your ability, you as well, um, to, make it help, to make it happen, to help God out a little bit. You know what we would call that? Tony Evans calls that a mutual fund faith, where you invest in a lot of other things. Do you know what a mutual fund is? So a uh, courageous investor, he finds a good business or she finds a good business, and they take their money and they invest in that one business. And if that one business goes well, do you know what happens? you get really rich. But if that business does not do well, you know what happens? You lose it all. And so most of us, the smart people, or you could say um, the conservative people in this, we don't invest in just one thing. We invest in a mutual fund where there are a lot of different businesses that come together and we partner with a bunch of different people. And so that way, if one thing goes well, you do a little bit okay. And if one thing goes bad, you don't lose it all. And so you kind of spread it around and a lot of us do that with God. Maybe a couple of examples for us so, this morning. So God has declared you righteous and blameless in his sight. How many of you, how, do, do I walk around with this vague sense of God's disapproval with me? That when he looks at me, he's just like, just a little bit more. Pull yourself together. You walk around with fear or anxiety or uncertainty, feeling like you always have to measure up. Listen, if that is you, this is a gut check for me. You know what that is? That's a mutual fun faith. Because God has declared you righteous, holy, and blameless in your sight. And if we are letting those feelings dictate our reality, what we're actually saying is, God, I trust you a little bit for certain things, but I trust my opinion about me over what you have declared over me. That's hard. That is really hard. Do you know the moment you said yes to Jesus, do you know what he said to you? Look at the lilies of the field. They're taken care of. Do not worry. How many of us struggle with the thought of tomorrow? <laughs> like, how am I ever going to make it to this? How is this ever going to happen? Will I ever be able to retire? Will I ever be able to pay for all of my kids to do whatever it is? And Jesus is like, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the lilies of the field. He says crazy things like, though you walk through the shadow of the valley of death, 
fear no evil. The Lord has prepared a banquet over me in the presence of my enemy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. But how many of us actually get up every morning and delight in that reality? If you do not, you're hedging your bet. You have a mutual fun faith. I have a mutual fun faith because what I'm actually saying is my opinion about me matters more than what you have declared over me. And now, just because you're asking, can we get real, real personal this morning? We talk about um, community all of the time around here. We think being known uh, is not optional. Alone is bad. And it is real easy for us to come into a place like Riverside or any, any other church you go to and go in and say, I like that teaching there. I like the worship there. I like that community. And you never really let anybody know you. And it's easy to backdoor right out of that place. Because the thought of allowing somebody to know you, thought of allowing somebody to walk alongside you in your journey, and if like they really knew you, it's scary. And yet, Christ calls every church his body, that you should belong to the body of Christ. Have you ever seen those old shows where like the boat is going away from the dock and the person has one foot on and one foot off and the boat is slowly going and slowly going. It doesn't end well. And one foot in and one foot out of community, y'all, it just doesn't end well. It's a, it's a, it's a mutual fund faith. And so I believe that these saving elements of faith are you're trusting in God's ability. You're trusting in God's promise. And the last thing I want you to see this morning is this. You're not just believing general things about God, but you're believing the last thing is in faith's feebleness, which is such a good word. We don't hear use that word that often. Look at verse 20 as we begin to define what it is. Yet he did not waver through unbeliefs regarding the promises of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave God all the glory. Do you know the story of Abraham? How can you say that he did not waver in his faith? Because multiple times, he was a dirtbag. <laughs> Honestly, twice, two different men came to him and were like, whoa, who's, who's that girl you're with? And it was his wife. And he said, I don't know, she's my sister. Because he was afraid of the consequences of, of what it would come with. Two times. What kind of dirtbag does that with his wife? Somebody comes in here and is like, hey, John, who's that pretty girl sitting on the front row? I would say, I don't know, she's my, she's my, she's my sister. Are you interested? Like, who does that? That's Abraham. That's what he does. It's, 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 it's utterly just ridiculous. Do you know what? Happens in Genesis chapter 16, they've been waiting on this promise forever to come through. And so Abraham decides to help God out a little bit. He sees Hagar, his maidservant, and he sleeps with her, have a child. And you're telling me that Abraham did not waver in his faith? Are you kidding me? Paul, do you know who Abraham was? Of course he did. He knew it better than all of us, but Paul knows 
to follow Christ, to follow Jesus, it's not having an unflinching, unwavering faith. It's actually maybe just the opposite. It's believing that when you blow it and you fall and you trip or you make a mess of your life, that you're learning how to stand again. And you're learning that the only way forward is running straight at the cross because it has all been paid for there. Christians then are not believing just in the general revelation of God. We're believing that when you blow it, that when you mess up, there is a solid foundation for you to stand on. And that is the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys watch a lot of UFC. Um, One of my favorite uh, guys is a guy named Fedor Emelianenko. Does anybody know who this guy is? Okay, a couple of yes. He's, he's awesome. So he, uh, he's probably in his late 40s now, maybe early 40s now. Uh, and this guy was wrecking shop for 20-something years. I think uh, I started watching him when he was like 37 and 1. And uh, what was one of my favorite things about Fedor is he had a dad's bod. <laughs> He kind of was older. He kind of had some love up here a little bit. He wasn't particularly just ripped out or anything like that. Um, And he would get in there and clean people's clocks. It was pretty impressive. Until the day came when he got pummeled. He just got devastated. And it rocked uh, the MMA world. And in an interview, this is what Fedor said. Go to that next slide. The one who does not fall, does not stand up. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of what Paul is beckoning you, inviting you to this morning, is that Christians, the faith journey is not about whether you fall or not. It's about knowing that when you stand, you're standing on the solid foundation of the life and ministry the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is a good place to plant your feet because it's not about your ability to be perfect. It's about your ability to stand and look forward and keep going. Do you know what happens when you get a hold of that? Look at what it says in verse 22. The last thing I want us to show this morning. This is why it is credited to him as what? Righteousness. The word, it was logizomide to him, was not just written for him. It was written for you this morning. It was written for everybody that donned those doors this morning. When we talk about faith and what it is, we dissect it when we put it on the table. It's not just a general belief in God. We're believing that we can trust in the promise of God to receive the gift of salvation freely. We're trusting in God's ability. We're trusting in his power. And then lastly, we're not trusting in our abilities to be perfect, to not stumble, to not fall, but we're trusting that there is a solid place for us to park our feet when we do, to keep looking forward and feel the invitation of the dad that says, come on. Come on home. Come on home. Come on home. Just keep coming. And you know what happens when you do that? You get the righteousness. You don't get just forgiveness. Faith unlocks the door. It's the means in which you and I have a declaration over us now that says, 
in my sight. You are holy and blameless. The sin has not just been forgiven, but it has been removed. Where is it? I don't see the sin anymore. God is forgetful. And it's like it never happened because it did never happen. He's forgetful. It's removed. You are declared righteous in this sight. So I'll just make a confession. Uh, I don't know how to close a lot of sermons down. I'm still thinking through a, a lot of this. It's new for me. Uh, sometimes I, I think, I, I just don't know of a better way to do it than for us just to worship and for us to make declarations, to make songs as not just pretty noise that we're singing, but it's actually a prayer that we're praying out to God. And so this morning, we're going to take two minutes and just sing the last little bit of Build My Life. And what a powerful song for us to think through this morning, because there are lots of places you could build your life. But when you unlock and you're dissecting what faith is, what you're actually making a declaration is where you are choosing to build your life. There's only one sure and solid foundation. So brothers and sisters, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand right now, and we're going to get after it right now. We're going to sing one last time through with everything that we have, with all that we have, not based on how you feel, because we don't have mutual fun faith. We believe and we sing because it's not because of our feelings, but because it's true. And it's a declaration that God believes about you. So let's do it together one more time as we close. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. And worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. And worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me and I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation and I will put my trust He was delivered over to death for me, for my sins, and he was raised to life so that I could be credited with his righteousness. And so, God, we love you. We bless you. God, where else are we going to build our lives other than on you, Father? You are the firm foundation. That's where our faith lies, God. That's what faith beckons us to, Father. And so we trust in your promises. We trust in your ability. We don't trust in ours, but we trust in the declaration over us as your kids, holy and blameless in your sight. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you this week.